said, why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Got him on out, dried up in the drought. I can't remember what I was talking about. I'm stumbling around the sand. I don't understand the sound of your command. All my best days are behind me as I approach my final test. Shackled to my choices, I can hear the voices saying I could use some rest. Something gotta go, something gotta kill. I gotta leave it all behind. When I lay down my burden, I know for certain I surrender. When your peace is mine, or when your peace is mine. Without a care, I was unaware, acting like a preacher. Well, I was unprepared. Thought I hit the stride, sheltered in my pride, but what was hidden was my own blind side. All my best days were in front of me. I must be truly blessed. I could hide and run, but the deal is just for fun. Until my sins have been confessed. Something gotta go, something gotta give. I gotta leave it all behind. When I lay down my burden, I know for certain I surrender. There is no one left, Jesus. They have all gone. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Hola. Buenos dias. ¿Qué tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. 
It's great to be back with you again this week. That was a clip from the movie The Passion of the Christ. It was that last scene of our Lord hanging on the cross when he seems in utter despair as he cries out to God his Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you're anything like me, that bothered you. It bothered me growing up as a kid, knowing that our Lord made such a statement. We're going to get into that today. We're going to talk about what that means and what power we can draw from it. Before we do that, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. All praise and glory and honor be to you, Almighty God and Father. We worship you. We praise you. We stand in your glory and in your awe, and we we wish to, to learn from you. We pray that you'll send forth your spirit, that to fill our hearts full of passion and joy. My Lord and my God, we pray for the conversion of sinners for the poor souls in purgatory, for the repose of the soul of Mary Lou Brown, for John Medeiros and Marissa Sanchez and Kelly Varina and all those whom we have lost this year. May God have mercy. We pray for a clean heart, O Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will return to thee. We pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today on Behold the Man, uh, this topic really gets me going. I don't even know what to say. There's not words. I get very emotional when I start to contemplate how our Lord hung from the tree, the tree of life, and cried out to God what seemed to be in utter despair. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I mean, isn't he God? How can he turn his back on himself? How can he feel so utterly alone and desolate? These are the questions that I asked myself and I begged God to to enlighten me. And one day, he he blessed me by giving me at least some glimmer into the understanding of the suffering of Christ, the sacrificial nature of it. Did truly... Did Jesus truly think he was abandoned by God his Father on the cross? I submit to you he did not. I submit to you that that is not what's going on at all. I submit that the answer, believe it or not, is not found in despair, but the answer is found in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God. Giving God praise and thanksgiving. That is what... I believe anyway, where we will find the true meaning of such a powerful statement of why does God forsake me? You know, here in the United States, uh, Thanksgiving is fast approaching. And uh, just to give us a little context here, I've looked at the Wikipedia article on Thanksgiving. It says, quote, Thanksgiving Day is a harvest festival celebrated primarily in the United States and Canada. Thanksgiving was a holiday express to express thankfulness, gratitude, and appreciation to God 
family and friends, for which all have been blessed of material possessions and relationships. Traditionally, it has been a time to give thanks for a bountiful harvest. This holiday has since moved away from its religious roots. Americans commonly believe that the first Thanksgiving happened in 1621 at Plymouth Plantation in Massachusetts. There is strong evidence for earlier celebrations in Canada in 1578 and by Spanish explorers in Florida in 1565, unquote. So that's what we're coming to here in the U.S. here in another week or so. The Thanksgiving feast, where we all try to take a, a moment to gorge on food and hopefully remember before the football games start that we should be thankful for the things that we have, the friends, the family, for the great blessings that we have in the United States that so many around the world simply don't have. Or even those here in the United States, even they suffer in a great deal. Spiritually, I'm speaking mostly, but also physically and in poverty and material gain, of course. But spiritually speaking, we suffer greatly in the United States, but also around the world. And so we should take time to not think of our material possessions as much as our spiritual well-being and give thanks to God that he has given us the church, the sacraments, the Holy Spirit to guide us on this journey. That is at the root and the cause of the thanksgiving that Christ proclaimed from the cross. The Thanksgiving goes way back, way before ever there was turkey offered here, either in Canada or in the U.S. or wherever. We see how ancient peoples offered up harvest festivals, thanking their, their God for bringing them the bountiful harvest that they might last yet another winter season. Even the people of God, worshiping the one true God who revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to the people, even they offered up the Pentecost feast, which was the harvest festival. But we see also there was something greater than that. There was a, a real thanksgiving to God, which is what they call the thank offering, or in Hebrew, the todah, the todah, thanksgiving. Or as, as we often hear, the todah el Adonai, thanks be to God. This was a sacrifice that was liturgically celebrated. It was an offering given to God, praising Him for what He has done. Now, in in the Leviticus, uh, in the Levitical structure of sacrifices, we read that in Leviticus one through seven, there are prescribed sacrifices. And just to be general here, there there, there is the burnt offering, the cereal offering, the peace offerings, sin offerings. And guilt offerings. Now, under the peace offerings, there was multiple offerings there, and we're going to focus on the Todah, which was one of the peace offerings. But in general, sacrifice reconciles man to God and establishes a covenant relationship. Now, Adam and Eve, they were placed in the garden. They didn't need to offer sacrifice of animals, the blood of bulls and goats. They walked in the presence of God. They, they, they met with him, they convened with him, they spoke with him, they, they, they enjoyed life in a unique presence, a state of grace. Then they fell from that grace. And from that moment, they were expelled from the garden. And from that moment, sacrifice was required in order to reconcile man back to God that he might once again find himself in the presence of God. Death entered into mankind's existence at the fall of man. And so because of that death, death needed to be realized through the sacrifice of the animal 
to be reconciled once again. Now, daily sacrifice, however, was not a requirement. No. You see, as 21st century Christians, we start to think about the Old Testament and the Levitical law and the sacrificial system of the priests in the temple, and we think, oh man, that's all crazy. It's so ritualistic. They offered all these sacrifices every single day. But that was not a requirement. No, not until Exodus chapter 32 and the great sin that happened at, uh, at Mount Sinai when the people when Moses was on the top of the mountain, he was conversing with God, receiving the law. The people on the bottom, they got weary. They got tired of waiting. They thought this old man, he fell over. He croaked. He died. So they went to Aaron and they said, Aaron, get up. Make us some gods that we might worship, that they might go before us. Because that old man who led us out of Egypt, we don't know where he is. He's not coming back. And so the people, they turned their hearts back to Egypt. You see, God just worked a mighty miracle in their lives, slaying 10 Egyptian gods before their very eyes. The 10 plagues were slaying the 10 Egyptian gods. There were more than that for Egyptian gods, but there were 10 Egyptian gods that got slayed. So that should have told the people, hey, these gods, they are not true gods. They are not real gods. They are not real. I, however, am real, and they are not. So instead, the people turned their hearts back to Egypt. They started to worship the uh, the golden calf, which was uh, an Egyptian god of, of Apis. And God wanted to smite them, and Moses interceded on their behalf. And it was at that moment that God then forced them. God required that they should sacrifice day and night from that point on. That point on, sacrifice at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. every day. The Tamid sacrifice was offered in the tabernacle and in the temple. It wasn't until before that point, or until that point, that that happened. So that's, I think, in my opinion, a very significant moment, a turning point in the people of God and salvation history. And it, it was at that point that also God required the yearly sacrifice of the people, the sin offering, that Aaron, the high priest, had to offer a bull for himself and for his household. And then he offered the lamb for all the rest of the people. That was required from that point on. The peace offerings, however, were more significant Okay, they too go back a long ways. We see Noah offering up a sacrifice to God for saving them through the, the waters. That We see that in Genesis 8.20. How about Abraham entering into a covenant with the king of Shalom, the king of Salem as we call it, which is basically Hebrew for peace. The king of peace, King Melchizedek, come out and he offered up bread and wine to Abraham, and they entered into a covenant relationship there in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. Again, these are examples of peace offerings going back quite a ways before we receive the law or the liturgical practice in Leviticus. The most significant of the peace offerings is the todah, again Hebrew, meaning thank offering. We read about this in Leviticus Chapter 7, verses 12 through 15, it says, quote, If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thank offering unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers spread with oil, and cakes of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with cakes of leavened bread, and of such he shall offer one cake from each offering as an offering to the Lord. 
It shall belong to the priest who, who throws the blood of the peace offerings, and then flesh of the sacrifice of his, of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning." Unquote. This was a sacrifice offered by anyone who had been saved from death, from peril, from sickness, you, you name it. If anyone was on the brink of utter destruction or utter despair, and then God saved them, they came and they offered this thanksgiving offering, this todah. They came to the temple, they brought their lamb, which the priest took, he sacrificed, he spread the blood, he took the blood out and he sprinkled it on the altar, and then he took the shoulder and the neck and the, the priest got to eat that, so that was his portion, his share, his partaking in the sacrifice. And then what it was uh, the entrails and the, the fat were burned on the altar and that was offered up to God. And then the person took the bread uh, after the priest had consecrated the bread, took the bread and did a wave offering. Now, some say the ancient rabbinical writings say that that, that wave offering was done to the four quarters of the earth, which looked very closely, much like what we Catholics have in the blessing when the priest raises his hand upward and then downward and then right and left. Okay, this, this, this sign of the cross is what we, we have today. But the priest offered that very same gesture, up and down and right and left, was a wave offering. So the priest took the bread and did the wave offering, and then that was the, the consecration of that bread and gave it to the, the, lay for, the lay faithful there, and that person left the temple. Okay? They took the remainder of it back to their home, and they invited their friends and their family members over, and they would offer up this sacrificial meal, and they would all enjoy this meal of meat, of bread, and of wine. Wine was included. Okay? This, this was very, um, very reminiscent or uh, typological or foreshadowing of that Eucharistic meal that would come. More on that later on here in a minute. But during this meal that they had to have, they had to eat it that very day. They, as According to Leviticus, they couldn't wait till the next day to finish consuming it. They had to consume it that day. Okay? While they were doing this, songs were sung. Okay? These... These were psalms. Okay, they were todah psalms. They were specifically written for this sacrifice. This was very powerful. We actually read about the cup of wine, the cup of consummation, the cup of salvation that was raised to God in Psalm 116, verse 13. So we see a meal, a sacrificial meal with, with the lamb being offered, with the bread that was waved by the priest and consecrated, which the lay faithful was able to take and eat. Okay, this was the only sacrifice in the Levitical liturgical law that a lay person could actually partake in. They, the priests were allowed to eat, but this was the only one where a lay person could eat as well. So they took the bread, the wine, the cup of consummation, they called it, Psalm 116, verse 13, and they partook in this sacrificial offering, this todah, this thanksgiving to God, for he has saved us. He has looked on us in our, in our iniquity. He has, he has seen it fit to save us. And so they are just filled with great pride and great joy and gladness to God that he saved them and raised them up from the depths.
Now, King David, he takes this thank offering, this todah, and he kicks it up a notch. In 1 Chronicles 15, we read how David moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Okay, that used to be Salem or Shalom, as we said, which means peace. That was under King Melchizedek. Okay, so David brings up this ark, but he calls out all the clans of the Levites, the priests and the liturgical ministers, and he, he has them cleaned and he has them consecrated because it's time to do it right. Now, we messed up before, he says. Now it's time to do it right. We were commanded to take up the ark on our shoulders and walk it up. And so he has them uh, all dressed in fine linen garments, and he himself wears the linen ephah. This is the very vestment of the priest David, a priest, he wasn't a Levite, but yet David wears and dresses and acts just like a priest. And so they take up the ark to Jerusalem and David there dances before the ark on the way and he, he makes merry before the ark as it's going up to Jerusalem and they, they play instruments and they sing the psalms as they go up. This is reminiscent of that fateful encounter of Our Lady with Elizabeth, her cousin, in the hill country of Judea, as within her womb, at the very sound of Mary's voice, John the Baptist leaps for joy. It's a direct parallel to 2 Samuel 6, which is an episode of what we're talking about here, only here I'm drawing from 1 Chronicles 15. Then David offers up a peace offering for the people to the Lord when he gets to Jerusalem. Then he distributes to all bread, wine, and meat. We read about it in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 1 through 4. Quote, and they brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord, and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Moreover, he appointed certain of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, unquote. So he offers up the great Todah on behalf of all the people, and all the people partake in this uh, peace offering, this Todah offering. They take the bread and the, and the meat and the wine, and they partake. David, he initiates a perpetual Todah, a perpetual adoration, a perpetual thanksgiving to God with one of the clans of the Levites. From that day on, you know, from I read from uh, Dr. Scott Hahn's Letter and Spirit, from written text to living word in the liturgy, quote, David took a special interest in revitalizing the liturgy. Jewish tradition reveres him as a sort of second lawgiver, but his special law was dominated by liturgy, says Midrash Telahim, the oldest surviving commentary on the Psalms. Quote, Moses gave Israel the five books of the law, and David gave Israel the five books of the Psalms, unquote. David is all about liturgy. Again, it is very significant that David, who is not a priest, who is not a Levite, is here acting as a priest. He is both king and priest, dressed like a priest in priestly vestments. He is now offering the sacrifice himself. That is very significant. 
He has become the new Melchizedek, the very king of the same city that Melchizedek was both king and priest of. Again, foreshadowing typology of the one who is to come, the true heir of the throne of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is both king, priest, and lamb, the very sacrifice that becomes the new Todah. But I'm getting ahead of myself. King David recognizes the Levites and reinvigorates the liturgy of the people, giving them the psalms that are designed specifically for Todah, or thanksgiving. Now, a Todah psalm, okay, there are several psalms that are called Todah psalms. They are different from the rest. They have a very specific form, okay? They start with lament, okay? In other words, I'm surrounded, I'm drowning. They come to kill me. Okay, then it, it turns to a trust in God, even in despair. But you are my salvation and my rock. And then it ends in praise to God and, and telling others. For instance, I will proclaim in the congregation of your mighty deeds. David gives us the insight into the heart of God with the Todah Psalms. He says, quote, in Psalm 51, verses 16 through 19, quote, For thou hast no delight in sacrifices, were I to give a burnt offering, thou wouldst not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. Thou wilt not despise. Do good to Zion in thy good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then wilt thou delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on thy altar. Unquote. You see? It's a clean heart. It's an ear towards obedience, not the blood of bulls and goats that God desires. David makes it ultimately very clear to us. It's not the blood. It's the obedience. It's a clean heart. The people got caught up in the strict practice of the law, but forgot about the spirit of the law. And they needed both. They had to have both. David tries to keep the people on track with a clean heart. And that he reminds us that that sacrifice was out of necessity for their own evil doing at Mount Sinai. But the corporate Todah was the Passover. That was the one day of the year where the people, they could not offer a Todah for themselves because it was the corporate Passover, the corporate Todah that was being offered for all the people. Okay, And we see that in the Passover sacrifice, there's the lamb, the bread, and the wine. In fact, there are four cups in the Passover liturgy that are being offered. And there are certain hymns that are sung in the Passover. The great Hillel, for instance, Psalm 113 through 118, which includes Psalm 116, which we've already quoted from. The Todah Psalms, these are. These Psalms were movements of salvation. They went from despair to hope, to praise of God, and of giving thanks to God. The Todah, it said, will last forever. The ancient rabbis believed that the Todah sacrifice would be the only sacrifice that would live beyond the sacrifice of animals. We read, quote, In the coming messianic age, all sacrifices will cease, but the thank offering, Todah, will never cease, unquote. You see, in the upper room, it was a Todah. It was the Passover meal that Jesus enjoyed with his 12 disciples, a todah sacrifice. We read about that in Luke 22, verses 14 through 22. Now, what's interesting is the Greek word for todah, for thanksgiving, is eucharistia. It is eucharist that's being offered in the upper room. 
The cup of blessing which our Lord blesses, we read of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, it is the cup of blessing, which is the third cup in the Passover liturgy. And then what happens? Jesus, after he drinks this cup, he blesses the cup, he turns it into his blood of the new covenant. He sings the, the great Hallel, and then they leave. They go out to, the, to the, 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 the Garden of Gethsemane across the Kidron Valley. Well, they didn't end the Passover liturgy there. There was still a fourth cup. The cup of consummation was still needed. That cup happens on the cross. In John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, we read, quote, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there. So they put a sponge full of the vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, unquote. He received that fourth cup from the cross. To be sure, Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from, starts with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? From thy words of groaning, O my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, but find no rest. That's Psalm 22. It is a Todah Psalm. It starts in despair, but guess what? It ends in great glory. Yea, to him shall all the proud of the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust and who cannot keep himself alive. Jesus praises God in the Todah from the cross. It is good not to spare. CatholicHack.com is the website. Stop by for the links. God bless you. From the Catholic Underground.